1 Samuel chapter 20, we will continue with this theme of Jonathan and David. And remember, David is uh, being hounded by Saul, his oppressor, his jealous oppressor, um, and Jonathan, whom they've, they've formed this really close friendship. And now we're going to see kind of the pinnacle of that friendship going forward. Uh, Let me pray for us again real fast and just ask that the Lord would help us with this text. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would help us with it. Um, This passage that has so much attached to it already, um, sometimes we find it difficult to to parse through and find the meaning, particularly finding Jesus, um, who is the author of our faith. And so, Lord, help us to see him in this text see our own sin and be convicted of it and be led to the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so as I read through this passage, it made me think of my own friendships that I had, you know, because David and Jonathan's friendship is put on display once again here. And we've all had those relationships, I think, that are a drain to us. And you guys know what I'm talking about, you know, this, this kind of relationship where we, where we nurture the relationship, yet it continues to act as an emotional sink for us. It's only taking and it's never giving back to us. We start to dodge these people when we see them at Walmart and won't even go to places where we know they're going to be. Um, we all know that's taking place, uh, whether we admit it or not. We know that we're, what I'm talking about. Well, several years ago when we were transitioning out of full-time ministry and kind of I was desperately trying to stay in that world and stay active and known in the world of full-time ministry because it's real hard to get a job as a pastor when you're not a pastor. Um, And so I was trying to stay in there, applying at any and every church that I could find, talking to presbyteries constantly having to rehash my story over and over again about why we were leaving Maryland and all the stuff that was going on, all the while bringing all of my family through that and my friends along for the ride with me as I descended more and more into my own depravity and my selfish needs, I realized that I no longer had any friends that were a drain on me because I was the draining friend. And is it, is it possible to have relationships, and it made me think, is it possible to have relationships when you are giving equally to the relationship all the time, constantly? No. Why? Sin makes that impossible, doesn't Sometimes we're going to be that draining friend. Sometimes we're going to be the friend who needs to hold that other one up. It's why we have to be the sturdy one sometimes, and sometimes we get drugged through the dirt. We understand this, I think, as people. So in today's text, we have this great friendship on display, one in which both parties are strong and sturdy, even in the the face of adversity and even treachery. Jonathan and David's relationship has been subject to lots of devotions and youth talks about good friendship and what it looks like. And it's also been picked apart in devious ways by unbelieving Bible scholars on the other end of the spectrum. I think both ends miss the point here. The friendship of David and Jonathan and the covenant that they make 
with each other points us to Jesus Christ, not how to be a good friend, and the covenant that he made with the Father so that he could be called so that he could call his friends us. The covenant that Jesus made with the Father, the covenant of grace, so that we could be called friends. And so as we look at this, we're going to consider this main idea of friendship and the covenant. We'll consider this in two points, a covenant made between friends and a covenant made for enemies. So with that, I'll read the text this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 20. You may remain seated as I read this text. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asks to leave me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into the covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who would tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, the third day, behold, if, he is, if it is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more so, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that I may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do, cu- do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, and he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you have hid yourself when the matter was at hand, and remain behind the stone heap. Then I will shoot three arrows by the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. 
And behold, I will send a young man saying, go and find the arrows. If I say to the young man, look, the arrows are on this side, uh, this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. When the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for your clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away to see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have, that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David with a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find arrows that I shoot. And the boy ran, and he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy had came to the place of the arrow, Jonathan shot. Jonathan called after the boy and said, is it the arrow not beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and asked him, go carry these to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from his place beside the stone heap and fell to his face to the ground, bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because I have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Amen. This is God's word. So just a quick reminder, where we are in the text, Jonathan and David have met together before, they know one another now, and Jonathan was going to try to convince his father Saul, remember, to pardon David since he had done nothing wrong, and Saul agreed to that. He pardoned him, or he said he was going to, and then there was more fighting, and David won some more battles, and Saul didn't like it, so he tossed a spear at him, and David ran. David fled, or David fled, and he decided to flee to his own home this time. Remember where messengers from Saul were sent and waiting to kill him. The help of his wife and her 
household uh, good luck doll, David was able to escape again. And so here's David this, at this place, Naoth of Ramah, and uh, he's fled to Samuel. And remember Saul followed and was stripped naked and made to prophesy in the street for, for a whole day. And David is still alive, and that's kind of where we lead up to it, our story today. Jonathan, I think now seeing the insanity of his father in its fullness, more and more wants to help David. Notice, however, that Jonathan has this innate loyalty to his father. And I think it's admirable, even though his father's nuts, he still at least kind, kind holds near to him and at least wants to listen. In my mind, Jonathan is probably one of the best men in Scripture, even better than his friend David, probably. Again, not to be emulated by us. We don't need to write a new curriculum that's like dare to be Jonathan or anything like that. But not that we could be like Jonathan, but simply to notice that the Lord has servants on all sides, serving his will, each one fighting his battle, doing the will of the Lord in all places. And so I think it's good for us to note that. And I think it's hopeful for us to note the Lord isn't without ability to rise up the greatest men, even from among the enemy, which Saul's men represent the enemy for David in this case. It's a fact that missionaries have known for centuries that the Lord is capable of raising up good men from among the enemy. And I think we would do well to remember that as well as we minister to those who we may see as enemies uh, there's no knowing what the Lord might do. So we're, we're good to remember to love your enemies, even those friends that are a total drain on you. And so first, we'll look at this idea, covenant made between friends. David fled this place, Naoth of Ramah, and he went back to Jonathan. Of course, he's still wondering what he did wrong. What, what have I done? Why is Saul trying to kill me? Jonathan tells him that he's going to get this inside information. What my, my father tells me everything that he's going to do. But David, of course, no longer trusts that. Why? Because he knows that Saul's crazy. Saul has thrown a spear at him twice at this, at this case. Apparently Saul's a very bad spear thrower. Uh, he, he never misses, never hits his mark ever. He doesn't in this story either. Um, he knows that Saul is on to him, and so he's come up with this different plan, which the text spends oh, quite a bit of time telling us about in the passage. Their plan basically involves Jonathan lying to his father on David's behalf. And again, we've talked about this several times, but I think it's important to just note real quick, Jonathan should be absolved of this sin of lying, because I don't think it's a sin in this case. He's saving David's life a man innocent of the crimes that he's been accused of, that Saul is just seeking to kill because he's jealous. And so I think it's good that he's preserving his life. Preserving David's life takes precedence here, and Jonathan is absolutely right to do that in this situation. And so they make a plan basically to shoot this signal arrow to let David know if it's safe or not. If Saul happens to be calm, then David can come back. If Saul acts like himself, David should flee. That's kind of the long and short of it. And before they part ways to enact this plan, 
Jonathan asks David for a promise, for a special kind of promise called a covenant. And we see this language a lot in Scripture, the language of covenants. We talk about it quite a lot, so this isn't a new word for you all. We've talked about covenants. It's the idea that both parties make promises, and these promises are not just simply, yeah, I'll do that for you, but this is a promise binding on their very lives, as if to not go through with this would mean they would forfeit their own lives. Jonathan says that, you know, if, if I don't tell you what's going on, then, then may I be struck down. And so this is a, a promise that involves their very lives. It's a very, very special kind of promise. Jonathan knows who David is. Saul knows who David is. David is the chosen king. He's the one that Samuel anointed. Remember, he went to Jesse's house and found the, the shepherd boy out in the pasture and then anointed him even though all the, his big brothers were around. So we've seen this before. And now Jonathan has a claim to the throne and honestly would have made a great king for Israel, one that Israel didn't deserve, frankly. Yet, he knows that David is the rightful and anointed king. And so he goes to him with this knowledge. And Jonathan, for his end of the covenant, he is going to let him know his father's plan. His father wants to kill him, he's going to let him know. If he doesn't, he's going to let him know. This is to make sure that David gets away safely. What does he ask of David? He says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 14. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. The Hebrew word here for this steadfast love, it's actually one word. It's the word hesed. And this is a covenantal kind of love. It's a love that's associated with these pre-existing arrangements called covenants. That basically says, I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain no matter what. And so in Israel's case, and ours, what is this no matter what part? Well, this no matter what part in our case is our hideous sin, is it not? Yet he speaks over and over, the Lord speaks over and over concerning our, or his steadfast love for us and for his people, that he cannot give us up. Turn with me to... Lamentations, chapter 3. It's a sneaky little book right after Jeremiah. Lamentations, chapter 3. And I think this is a great text for us to consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Because in it, he talks about not only how we are disciplined as his people... But we, he still loves us anyway. And so look with me at Lamentations chapter 3, verses 16 through 33. And so this first part is going to be about the discipline end of things. That Israel much deserves, that we much deserve. He has made my teeth grind on gravel, 
and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace, and I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed within me, bowed down within me. And so this is a person or a people who are being disciplined by the Lord, who are being given the full extent of what they have earned from their sin. But then look at verse 21 and forward. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, the steadfast love of the Lord, that covenantal love, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Similar language to what we just read, right? Do not cast off my family. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. This is the writer. The writer of this text is Jeremiah, a prophet, who does the will of the Lord and even did the will of the Lord in the face of much persecution. He never had much good to say to the people that he had to say it to, but he did it anyway because he obeyed the Lord. And this is what he is personally going through. But why does he have hope? Because the Lord is good. Because of his steadfast love, his loving kindness, is what you may have read in your translation. He loves his people. Why? And this is important. Understand this. Why does he love his people? Because of a covenant that he made with the Son, Jesus, that he would love them because the Son was going to take his sins or their sins upon himself. And so go back to Jonathan's request then. Do not cut off your love from my house. When your enemies are all dead, let my family live. Isn't this incredible? Jonathan's faith was much larger than mine, not even a close comparison. He trusted that David would do right by him. Why did he trust that? Because they made a covenant and he does. Read first or second Samuel chapter nine, probably my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. David does right by the family of Jonathan. Why? Because he said he would. 
And so what do we, as believers, this side of Jesus, do with this passage? Hopefully you see that this is more than just two good friends protecting each other. This is a covenant thing. For us, we need to understand that our relationship with God is independent of us. And it might, that might be the most freeing thing that I can tell you this morning. God loves us because of Jesus, not because of us. God made a covenant with Jesus called the covenant of grace that he would save all of those that he gave to Jesus to save so that when Jesus came to earth and was going to come to earth, what did the angel tell Mary? Why is Jesus coming? Why, why should he be called Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. These are the ones whom God gave to him. This is the covenant that he made. The covenant relationship between the Father and the Son pre-exists time and is completely independent of my ability to be a good person and act right. I am loved by God because God loves me. Not because I'm good like Jonathan or David. Thanks be to God. Because if it was dependent on me, I'd have lost a long time ago. And that brings us to this next point, a covenant made for enemies. Turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to look at start verse 12. This is Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room. And he gives us some directives concerning this, and I think it's a great parallel passage to this, this passage with Jonathan and David. Starting at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that you have heard, all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Love one another. This is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Like Jonathan and David, right? If this isn't a picture of what Jesus is talking about, then what is? Well, are we able to do that? What other instructions are we given? Look at verses 13 through 17. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants. But I call you friends. Why does he call us friends? Because of what he has done for us. Again, who holds the cards in this relationship? Why are we his friends? Because of his relationship with the Father. This is what exactly what Jonathan is willing to do for David. Except that in Jonathan's case, David was an innocent man dying for another innocent man. Or that Jonathan was planning to die an innocent man for another innocent man, David, at least in this context. 
David doesn't deserve execution. Jonathan was willing to face his father's wrath to save his friend. Hopefully you're making the connection here. Isn't this what Jesus did for us? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. This is, a, this is a passage that should just be emblazoned on your brains when it comes to our relationship with the Lord and why He did what He did for us. And I think it's a great connection here with this concept of friendship and Jesus being our friend and why is He our friend. Well, let's look at Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So let's break this down. While we were still weak, we've never been able to hold up our end of the bargain any more than the Israelites in this story are. Where are the Israelites in this story? Well, they're waiting for their, their fearless leaders, Jonathan and David, the one who win all the battles. They're dependent on great men like Jonathan and David to do anything, to fight and win their wars. We are the friend that only takes that never gives, mostly because everything that we have to give is useless without his help to make it useful. Think about that for a second. What do I have to give even in my relationship with the Lord that's mine by itself? Nothing. I am weak. While I was weak, Jesus died for me. One might die for a righteous person, but even while we were unrighteous, he died for us. Consider that for a minute. There's nothing in us that makes us worthy of what he did for us. Since we've been justified, how much more are we saved from the wrath of God? Much worse than the wrath of Saul, right? Saul can't even hit with his spear. He missed his son. He missed David twice. The wrath of Saul is kind of weak, really. But the wrath of God never misses. Especially in Jesus' case, it didn't miss when it pinned him to the cross for us. And so now, not only are we not enemies, but what does Jesus tell us? We're his friends. And what does a friend do? Loves one another. He chose us, he appointed us, that we might go and do what? Bear much fruit. That he might go, that we might go and live lives worthy of the death that he died for us. Can we ever ultimately do that? Do anything worthy of what he did for us? Can we ever repay 
what he did for us? No. Do we need to? No. Why? Because of the steadfast love of the Lord. He holds up his end of the bargain. Guess who else's end he holds up? Ours. He loves us because he told Jesus that he would always love us, that he would never cut us off, that we would always be his children. There's no better news in the world. We are indeed a friend of God. That's incredible. And so what do we do with that? In conclusion, just quickly, what do we do? How should we live? We love one another just as he's loved us. We love our enemies because he loved us, his enemy. We bear much fruit. We do as he says because it cost him everything. And then we don't have to feel shame and guilt when we don't. Why? Because it costs him everything to remove those things from us as well. It's a pretty incredible gift that we have to live as he's told us to live. To feel no shame when we're unable because he's steadily making us more and more holy, more and more like himself. Is there any better news on earth? Is there any other system that works this way? No. And so what do we do? We want others to be a part of this as we watch them toil in meaninglessness of life, we want others to be a part of this, this good news, absolutely. We want to tell them. We want to let it change the way that they think, change the way that they live. And brothers and sisters, it should do that for us. And so let the gospel message change the way that we think and the way that we live. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our friend, that you faced the wrath of God so that, you, so that we could have the gifts that were due to you. We are called children of God because you took our sin and you nailed it to the cross. We are called joint heirs with you. We stand to inherit the promises of God the Father because of what you did. And so, Lord, help us to not forget that. And more importantly, Lord, help us to tell others there is no better news on earth that, that we gain everything by doing nothing. It's incredible. And so, Lord, help us to share that message to the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.